Twelve Years in the Saddle for Law and Order on the Frontiers of Texas by Sergeant W.J.L. Sullivan, Texas Ranger. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Twelve Years in the Saddle, Chapters 51 through 55. Chapter 51. The Hanging of Morrison. On the 25th of October, 1899, I was invited by Sheriff Williams of Wilbarger County to go to Vernon and help him hang a preacher who was sentenced to be executed on the 27th of that month for the alleged murder of his wife, whom he had poisoned with strychnine. I accepted the invitation and left at once for Vernon, arriving there on the morning of the 26th. The sheriff immediately put me on the death watch, and I remained on guard until 11 o'clock that night. The prisoner, Reverend G. E. Morrison, who was sentenced to be hung on the next day, was supposed to have murdered his wife at their home in Panhandle City, and had been brought to Vernon for trial on a change of venue. Although given the death penalty, he denied his guilt to the last, but the evidence was conclusive, and proved beyond doubt that he had fallen in love with another woman, and had poisoned his wife to get rid of her. Though most people believed him to be guilty, there was a movement on foot to have Morrison's sentence commuted to a life term in the penitentiary. A few days before his execution, however, he and two of his fellow prisoners attempted to escape by attacking Mr. Shies, the jailer, and trying to overpower him. While one of the prisoners had Shies clinched, Morrison yelled to him to kill the jailer. This news reached Governor Sayers, while Morrison's sister and two attorneys were kneeling at his feet, pleading with him to commute the prisoner's sentence to life imprisonment in the penitentiary. There was a possibility of Governor Sayers yielding to their prayer, but he determined upon the other course after he received the message from the sheriff and learned how ugly Morrison had acted. On the evening of the 26th, the sheriff at Vernon received a telegram from the governor saying that he must hang Morrison on the following day. Morrison listened to the sheriff as the latter read to him the governor's message and replied that all had been done that was possible and that he guessed he would have to take it. The next morning his sister went to the jail and wept over him. Later on, another lady and a preacher joined her, and the three knelt together in prayer. Morrison also prayed until time for the execution. At twelve o'clock, he stood on the scaffold and made his farewell speech. A few minutes later, his body dropped through the trap door, and his neck was broken. Morrison apparently took a fancy to me, and left me a pair of suspenders and a matchbox for keepsakes. He also wrote me a letter the night before his death, which I had requested him to do, as I wanted it for a souvenir. Following is the letter as he wrote it. Vernon, Texas, October 26, 1899. Mr. Sullivan. Dear Sir, You have asked me to write something that you can keep to remember the occasion of our meeting. I don't know what to say to you, but I hope the following may be entirely satisfactory. First, I believe in a future life, and I believe that men are punished for the sins of this life and are rewarded for the good things. Second, I believe in a general judgment, and all must stand in that day before the bar of God and be judged. I believe I have the witness of God's Spirit bearing witness with my own spirit, and believe that, though God allows man's law to take my life, yet he saves me, and of the future I have no fears whatever. Now, goodbye, and may you ever be a champion of the right and an enemy of the wrong. Your well-wisher, G.A. Morrison. Chapter 52 a prayer. During the first part of the summer of 1901, I was riding the range of the LX and Turkey Track Ranch on the Canadian River 
guarding that place against a band of cow thieves and horse thieves and outlaws who were terrorizing the citizens in that part of the state. On the 8th of July, things having quieted down considerably on the range, I went over to a small ranch which I owned further up the river to take a little rest. During the afternoon of that day, while lying on the bed idly and quietly thinking over my past life, it suddenly came to my mind that in two more days I would be fifty years old, as the 10th of July would be the 50th anniversary of my birth. With that thought, I fell into deeper meditation. I asked myself if I had accomplished anything good in life, or if I had ever bettered myself, or had done anything to help mankind in general in my humble way. I smiled when I reflected that I had always been an honest, law-abiding citizen, so far as I knew how, and had ever tried to be a faithful officer. But another thought came to my mind, and I smiled no more. It is true, I had always been careful to do my duty to my state and to society, but had I not been very negligent of my duty to God? Once, in 1872, while attending a religious meeting in the little town of Douglasville, Texas, I was profoundly impressed with the doctrines of Christianity, as they were earnestly expounded by the able minister of that place. I did not feel, however, that I had been converted, and was leaving the church at the close of the services with no idea of becoming religious, when some of the preachers and a young lady, who was then Miss Cora Howe, stopped me and asked me to go up and give my life to God. I told him that I had not been converted, that I had not received God's grace. They talked to me a long time about my soul, and slapped me on the back so hard that I thought they were trying to beat religion into me. They finally left me and went their way, and I went mine. I still thought that I had not been converted, but a night or two after that, while riding back home after the close of one of the meetings which I had attended, and while deeply meditating on religious subjects, a happy feeling came over me that I cannot describe. Some young people were riding just in front of me, whose gaiety and laughter did not harmonize with the mood that had suddenly taken possession of my mind. So I held my horse back until the distance was so increased between them and me that I was left alone with God. Not in a church building, with men and women all around watching me, but there in that lonely spot, surrounded by nature, and with God my only witness, I beheld, even through the darkness of the night, a great light, and I reached out in an effort to grasp that brilliant, dazzling thing. I don't suppose I could have reached it myself, but because I tried so hard to get the light, it came to me, flooded my mind with spiritual understanding, and I gave my heart to my Maker. The rest of the story I do not like to confess. I lived as a good Christian would for three years, and then, as lots of men do, I began to be careless, and gradually grew more and more negligent of my duty to God, and for twenty-five years I left him almost entirely out of my life and consideration. In other respects, I had performed my duty and built up a good character, but I had not given God his due. And, as I lay on the bed on this July afternoon in 1901, these thoughts troubled my mind and pricked my conscience. I resolved that in two more days, on the fiftieth anniversary of my birth, I would again give my heart to God. In 1872, I had seen the light in the darkness. This time I beheld and recognized it in its peculiar beauty, even while the sun was pouring out his own rays of brilliancy all around me. I resolved to give God my heart on the 10th of July, and I had a good excuse for putting it off two days, for I desired, for sentimental reasons, to commence living right again exactly on the day of my 50th anniversary. It is not wise to unnecessarily put things off, and, in this instance, procrastination proved to be a great a thief as ever. On the 10th, the day I was to have reformed and to have given my life to God, I happened to be very busy, and failed to comply with the vow I had solemnly made on the 8th, 
and it was not long before I had good reason to regret it, for on the twelfth, two days afterward, I met with an accident that came near costing me my life. I spent the day and night of the eleventh in Dumas, the nearest town, where I had gone for my mail. On the following day, the twelfth, I went back to the ranch, and in some manner accidentally shot myself through the leg, and came near bleeding to death before assistance reached me. While crawling on the ground, with blood spurting from an ugly wound, I thought of the resolution I had made four days before to lead a different life. Is this God's manner of punishing me for my negligence? I asked myself, but I did not believe it was, and dismissed the thought from my mind. I feared, however, that my time had come, and I dreaded to think that I was to die by my own hand. In my helplessness, I looked up to God and prayed to Him with all the earnestness of my heart. Oh, God, I know I do not deserve to live, but, merciful Father, grant me a few more years on this earth so that I can serve you the rest of the days of my life. If, however, it is your will that I die now, I shall accept my fate with resignation and calmness, realizing that thou art the all-wise God and know best what to do with me. God spared my life, and ever since then I have tried to live as I thought he would have me to do. Chapter 53 I Shoot Myself During the twelve years that I served the people of Texas as a state ranger, I was exposed to hundreds of bullets and other dangers, but never received a serious injury until I shot myself while guarding the LX and Turkey Track Ranch in the summer of 1901, which fact I mentioned in the preceding chapter. After coming out of so many tight places unharmed, it seems remarkable to me that it should be left to my own hand to inflict the wound that crippled me for life. I returned on the twelfth day of July to my ranch, after spending the previous day and night in Dumas, and while passing through the pasture on my way to my ranch, my attention was attracted by the barking of a dog, the bawling of the cows, and the bleeding of calves. A certain dog in the neighborhood had a habit of chasing the cattle away from the water, and knowing this, I soon guessed the cause of the confusion, and decided to kill the troublesome little canine. When the dog saw me, however, he ran away, going as fast as he could up the hill, with me close behind. I shot at him three times before he reached the top of a hill, and cocked my gun to have it ready for the fourth shot. Still after the dog, I was running my horse down the other side of a steep hill, when my saddle, which had been too loosely girded, slipped from the animal's back down to his neck. My horse, being a little wild, became frightened at this occurrence, and commenced to jump and pitch considerably. I was still in the saddle, and while trying to control the horse, I accidentally pulled the trigger of my six-shooter, which, as I have stated before, was cocked. Now that was an unlucky moment for me when I touched that trigger and discharged that gun, and the next few hours meant horrible pain and suffering, while the following days and weeks were but little better. The bullet passed through my thigh, breaking the bone, and causing the blood to flow freely from the wound. I fell from the saddle to the ground, and saw my horse turn and run up the hill. When I discovered that I had broken my leg, I pulled my boot off and began crawling, dragging the boot along with me. My boots were of extra fine quality, and I did not want to lose them, so after going about seventy-five yards, I hid the boot in a place where I could easily find it afterwards. Owing to the nature of the wound, I had to crawl backwards. A few moments after hiding the boot, I fainted, and when I regained consciousness, my fever was so high and my mouth was so parched with thirst that I crawled to a nearby creek. The nearest house was two miles away, and, in trying to reach it, I crawled down this little stream. In quenching my awful thirst, I drank so much water that it cramped me. After four hours in the creek, I took to the land, and tried to shorten my journey by crawling through the pasture. 
Some distance away from the creek, I came upon a bunch of cattle. My leg was still bleeding, and the cattle, scenting the blood, came to me. I wished that they had been human beings. They did not know what to make of me, crawling along in such a strange manner, and becoming excited, they walked around and around me in a circle, gazing at me all the while. Suddenly a big Durham bull, with sharp horns, advanced near me, and looked as if he was going to tear me up. About five steps from me he stopped and shook his head, pawed the earth, and bellowed. I wished then that I had not lost my six-shooter when I fell from my horse a few hours before. I also remembered my Bill Cook Winchester, and thought about how quickly I would shoot this bull if I had it with me. As it was, I was defenseless, and expected every moment that the next would be my last. I could do nothing but talk to the beast, and I appealed to his principle, honor, and mercy, and implored him not to attack me while I was so helpless. My prayer did not at first appear to have any effect on his mind and heart. While thus imploring the bull to go his way, I suddenly discovered that I had come upon a huge rattlesnake in his coil. I was within two feet of him when he began to use his rattles. I was satisfied from his movements that my time to die had at last arrived, and I felt rather creepish, but I managed to evade the snake by crawling around him, and thus ended my troubles of this nature. The bull and the snake gone, I resumed my slow and painful journey. I had to travel by throwing my body backward with my good leg. At sundown I reached a barbed wire fence, and was almost famished for water, after my tedious crawl of an hour and a half across the pasture. Exhausted from loss of blood, I leaned my head against a post to rest. I soon became drowsy, however, and immediately roused myself to action, for I realized that to fall asleep then would mean death, as my leg continued to bleed and I was getting weaker all the while. Suddenly I heard the voice of a boy, and knew that someone was around. I was satisfied that it was Ray Bennett, the little son of the owner of the ranch, looking for his cows. I called out to him, but the wind was blowing toward me from his direction, and I could not make him hear. The noise that the lad made while riding in that part of the pasture gradually died away, and I knew that he was gone. The hope that had suddenly leapt into my heart also departed, and left me in despair. I was still suffering for water. I knew that there was an irrigation ditch about thirty yards on the other side of the fence, but getting to it was the problem. The fence was too low on the ground for me to crawl under, and climbing over it was, of course, out of the question. I thought of a place, however, about twenty yards further down, where the wind had blown the sand from under the fence and left a hole large enough for me to crawl under. I immediately made my way to that place and crawled through the hole. When I had got within fifteen yards of the ditch, I looked up and saw the same little boy whom I had heard a short time before. I called him to me and asked him to bring me my hat full of water from the ditch. He not only brought mine but his own full, and I drank all the water that my hat would hold. The boy then summoned his father, who brought me stimulants and carried me in a wagon to his house. This part of the trip was easy for me, as Mr. Bennett had thoughtfully put a mattress and some quilts in the wagon so I could rest more comfortably. I asked Mr. Bennett to send me to my ranch, six miles away, but he would not think of it, saying that it was too far and that the trip would make against me. He sent for his wife, who happened to be at the creek fishing, and they went to lots of trouble and did everything possible to help me. My wound had swollen so that my clothing had to be cut off the injured leg. A fire was quickly made, and a pot of coffee put on for me. Not wanting to occupy one of their best beds in my condition, I asked them to make a bed on the floor and let me lie there but they would do nothing of the sort, and placed me in the best bed they had. I complained that I was too much trouble, but they assured me that I was not, and acted as if it were but a pleasure for them to do for me. 
Their manner and cordiality cheered me up and made me feel at home. Such is rural hospitality and kindliness. Mr. Bennett's oldest son, Charlie, went to a line camp nearby and got Charlie Smith, who lived there, to go thirty miles from the camp to a phone to summon Dr. Pearson at Amarilla, which place was twenty-five miles still further on. Dr. Pearson left Amarilla at two o'clock and reached me the next morning at eleven, about twenty-three hours after my accident. My leg was so badly swollen by that time that the doctor could do nothing but await developments. I stayed at Mr. Bennett's six days and was treated royally. I shall never forget the kindness of that family. On Wednesday, I was started in an ambulance to Amarilla, where I was to have my leg set. I was accompanied on my trip by five men who carefully attended to my wants. A dozen men wanted to go with me, but I told them that five would be enough. When we reached our destination, the next day at noon, my friends in Amarilla met me and rendered me what assistance and comfort they could. My leg had been broken so long that it could not be set straight. One end of the bone overlapped the other about three inches, which made a difficult operation for the surgeons. I had to stay in Amarilla three months, but the kind ministrations of friends seemed to shorten the time and ameliorate my suffering. My experience was terrible, but while undergoing it, I was forcibly reminded of the fact that there are many people in the world who have real humanity in their hearts, and who possess much tender sympathy for those about them who fall victim to trouble and misfortune. I was tendered financial assistance by the presidents of two banks of Amarilla, Messrs. W. H. Fuqua and Tall Ware, but, luckily, I did not need this assistance. Chapter 54 A Call for Protection In 1891, I was ranching in Moore County on the Canadian River. During that year, I went to Dalhart, Dallam County, to visit some friends who had settled there. To get to Dalhart, I had to go to Amarilla, which town was 60 miles from our ranch, and take the train there for Dalhart. Dalhart was then a new town on the Rock Island, where that road intersects the Fort Worth and Denver. It was strictly a railroad town, and was located 35 miles south of Texline, the county seat. The town and county were supposed to be prohibition, but two saloons and several gambling houses were running wide open in direct violation of the law. These saloons were called Tom Black and the Beckett, being named after their respective owners. The sheriff, who lived at Texline, had three deputies in Dalhart, but they were unable to put a stop to these violations of the law and could not preserve peace and order. When I reached Dalhart, things were in a bad shape, and a reign of terror existed. The town was filled with lawless people. Gambling was going on night and day, and drunkards were always to be seen staggering along the streets. A lady was not safe outside of her house. One lady was robbed in open daylight, and others were insulted by some of the low characters who daily emerged from the saloons, soaked with whiskey. While I was there on a visit, numbers of robberies occurred every night. The better element of the town were outnumbered by these outlaws, and were bluffed and scared by them. The lawlessness that reigned in Dalhart was becoming notorious, and the growth and the prosperity of the town was threatened. The people who were deeply concerned in the moral and material interests of the town realized that something had to be done with the outlaws and thugs who infested the city, and a committee of the best citizens of that place asked me to move to Dalhart and serve them as a peace officer. Justice of the Peace R. P. Edgell, Colonel Oakes, the banker, Chapman, the real estate man, and Sheriff Morris and Colonel Al Boyce were among those who asked me to help them break up the gang of outlaws who ruled their town. They offered me a hundred dollars a month for my services. 
I told them that it was a hard proposition to think about, as it was a bad bunch I would have to deal with, but I asked them for ten days' time to think over their offer. They gave me the time I asked for, so I left at once from my ranch to attend to other business, and to think over their proposition. Before the time limit expired, I decided to go to Dalhart and help the people out, so I got on my horse and rode across the country, it being sixty-five miles away, and reached Dalhart late in the evening. The sheriff met me, and I told him to swear me in, which he did the next morning. I knew that I would have to go about my business in a determined manner. I also realized that, unless I was careful, I would have lots of trouble on my hands. I went to work at once and billed 27 cases against Tom Black for selling whiskey in a prohibition town and county, and 18 cases against Beckett for the same offense. I also billed cases against Beckett's bartender and Tom Black's three bartenders. Black then employed a lawyer, a Mr. Smith of New Mexico, to represent him. Smith went to Sheriff Morris and told him that Black said that he would give him, Morris, $50 if he would discharge me. Smith then remarked that Black could get along all right with the sheriff, but he could not stand me, and again asked Morris if he would not discharge me for that $50. The sheriff told him by no means would he fire me, that I was the only man he had ever had who did not stand in with the tough element. The sheriff told me later on about the proposition that the lawyer had made to him, but told me not to mention it, and I promised him I would not. When I met Black afterward, however, I was sorry I had made the promise, for I saw I had to break it. Black was coming down the street, and I called to him and rode into an alley to meet him. I asked him if he had promised the sheriff $50 if he would discharge me, and he answered that he had. I then asked him what his grievance was against me. He asked me if I did not summon the jury that indicted him in 27 cases for selling whiskey. Of course, I did not have anything to do with summoning the grand jury, and Black ought to have known better than to ask such a question. I told him that I summoned every one of them and asked him how he liked the men. He said that they were the liars and damn thieves of the country, and I told him that he was one of those jumpbacks himself. At that time I was pulling off my gloves. I was not going to shoot Black, I was going to throw down on him and make him listen to what I intended to say. Black thought that I was preparing to shoot him, as I afterward learned, so he made a spring and caught me around the waist, pinioning my arms to my side. After scuffling for quite a while, I finally succeeded in getting my arm loose from his, and reached down and clutched his throat. I touched White Man, my horse, with my left spur, and made him lean over toward Black. Black was jerking me all the time, and I still held to his throat. He finally twisted around until he got next to a porch, however, which gave him more power than I had while on my horse. My six-shooter had been working loosely on my belt, and his jerk in me made it slip around in front of me. He suddenly loosened his hold on one side with his right hand and jerked my pistol from the scabbard. Black was a giant in size, weighing 225 pounds and measuring six feet and four inches in height. I wondered for an instant what he was going to do with my six-shooter, but I soon saw, for after getting my gun he broke away from me and made a long run to his saloon, carrying the weapon with him. My Winchester was at the butcher shop on the opposite side of the street from where the struggle went on, and while Black was running to his saloon, I popped the spurs to my horse, and he reached the butcher shop in about three jumps. I called to Bob Troop to hand me my Winchester, which he did. I knew there were no cartridges in it, as I had taken all of them out for fear some thoughtless person would throw the lever and put a cartridge in the barrel, and not knowing how to get it out, and would let it go off and kill someone out in the street. I asked Troop then to hand me my belt, and as he did so, I pulled two cartridges from it and loaded my rifle. I was just whirling my horse around to fire at Black, who was then entering the rear of his saloon, 
when I saw his half-brother running toward me with my six-shooter. I stopped and waited for him, and when he got to me, he said that Tom had sent my gun back to me. I told him to tell Tom that I had no intention of killing him, and that if he would behave himself, I would never have to hurt him. That night I watched Black's saloon, it being full of gamblers, robbers, and thugs. While watching the saloon from the outside, I saw two men walk in and come out in a few minutes. I arrested them, and, searching them, I found on the person of each man a quart of whiskey. I escorted the two men to the office of the Justice of the Peace, and sent for the Justice. When he arrived at his office, I made the two men swear under oath where they bought the whiskey, how much they paid for it, and from whom they purchased it. I then got two warrants out for Black, and getting Sheriff Morris to join me, I went back to arrest him. Black learned that we were after him, however, and left the saloon, and tried to make his escape. Several officers joined in the hunt, and we pursued him vigorously. Sheriff Morris and Officer Logan went northeast down the Rock Island track to the depot, while Bill Garrett and I went northwest. Pretty soon I saw a man running on the outer edge of the town, and saw him stop suddenly and lie down. I said to Bill Garrett, That is Black. As we started after him, he got up and ran to a small building nearby. When I had gotten within twenty-five yards of the house, and was facing the door, Black called out and asked if I was Sullivan. I told him, Yes. Then he asked me if it was the sheriff with me. I told him no, that it was Bill Garrett. Then I told him to come out of the house and surrender. He said, Sullivan, I will surrender, but do not shoot me nor hurt me. I replied that I would not hurt a hair on his head for the world if he did not make a play. But if you do make a bad break, I added, I will cut you off at your pockets. He gave up quietly, and I took him to the office of the Justice of the Peace, where I could get a light and read the warrant to him. I shackled him then, and carried him on the next train to Texline, where he was lodged in the county jail. He remained there nine days and nights before he gave bond and was released. I met him soon after he gained his freedom, and had a long talk with him. He told me that he dreaded to be arrested by me that night, on account of the fight which we had engaged in the day before his arrest. Black wound up his side of the conversation by saying, Sullivan, after what has happened between us, I shall always give you credit for being an honest officer. My respect for you has caused me to resolve to hereafter lead a different life. I know that I have been violating the law, but I will quit now, and I would like for you to knock out all the indictments which you have secured against me, and I will take oath that I will never sell another drop of whiskey in the state of Texas. I saw the sheriff and district attorney and begged them to let him take the oath. I expected them to do so, but they did not agree with me and persisted in prosecuting him. Black lived in Dalhart for quite a while after I left there and was assassinated by someone who shot him from across the street. The next sheriff, J.N.O. Webb, and his son were alleged to have committed the deed and were tried but acquitted. No one knew for certain who did the shooting. Beckett and his bartender took the oath that Black wanted to take and went to Montana, and I never heard from them again. Chapter 55 Unknown Victim Falls in a Gunfight at Dalhart December 22, 1901 To Officer, Dalhart, Texas Arrest and hold one Tom Mayers for murder as he has no examination and notify Sheriff at Beaver City, O.T. Thomas Mayers and Al Zimmerman left last night to get their money. You can find them at the Rock Island office in the morning at Dalhart. Both of these men are about 28 years of age, and they wear a beard of three weeks' growth, five feet, five inches tall, both wearing caps. Zimmerman accessory to murder. G. O. Neal, 
Section Boss. While in Dalhart, I received the above telegram from Mr. Neal, who was working on the railroad about 40 miles out of the city. The message was handed to me while I was talking to some railroad officials in the depot. I immediately wired Sheriff Morris to come down to Dalhart in the morning, tell him I wanted to see him on business. Fearing that the sheriff was not in Texline and could not come down to help me, I deputized a Mr. McCormick to assist me in the case. I told the sheriff and McCormick both to come to a certain house before daylight. Both men arrived at the house the next morning, on time as I had requested, and I told them that we would go down to the depot before daybreak, so we would not be seen. I did not want anybody to know that anything was wrong. After reaching the depot, we went upstairs into the cashier's office and concealed ourselves. When the cashier arrived at his office, we told him what we were up there for, and I gave him the names of the two men who were to come for their money. When they present their cards, I told him, I want you to notify me. He assured me that he would, and we lay still and waited for Mayers and his partner to show up. About nine o'clock, the sheriff went downstairs and stayed away quite a while. When he returned, I told him that he ought to stay with us, as the men might discover him hanging around the depot and think something was up and not come in. The sheriff stayed with me then until 11.30 o'clock and left me again. I suppose he grew impatient and thought the men were not coming. Soon after the sheriff left, the cashier came to me and informed me that my men were at the window. Motioning McCormick to follow me, I opened the door that led into the hallway. I noticed that there were eight or nine men in the chute that led to the cashier's window. Every time a man looked in my direction, I motioned him to come out. In that manner, I finally got everybody out, except the two men who were next to the window, and I wanted them to stay where they were. They were watching the cashier, and did not look around until I took the man nearest me by surprise and ordered him to hold his hands up. Here in my command, he whirled around quickly on his heels, and as he did so, I twice again said, Hands up! When he saw McCormick and me with our pistols pointing at him, he ran his right hand down into his vest on the left side, and as he did that, I fired, and so did McCormick. We shot at him, and the firing of our pistols created such a dense smoke in the little chute that we could not tell whether the man had a gun or not, and when we saw he was advancing toward us, we fired again, hitting him twice in the breast. Mayers was in front of him, and Zimmerman happened to be out in the hall, but I didn't know it then, and thought that the man who ran his hand down into his vest and advanced on us was one of them, and McCormick and I both fired at him. McCormick shot three times, and I fired four times. After being mortally shot, the victim of our guns ran out of the chute into the hallway, where he soon died from his wounds. Mayers and Zimmerman both emptied their pistols at me, but only succeeded in hitting the man who had already received his fatal wounds. They shot him in the left ear, in the back, and in the right side. A shot struck Mayers in the chin, cutting the under part of it off. The top of his sleeve was also torn by a stray bullet from Zimmerman's gun. Before the fight was over, the smoke had become so dense in the chute and hallway that we had great difficulty in recognizing each other. During the confusion, McCormick got on the other side of the room and came near shooting me while firing at the man. The man who was killed fell with both feet propped against the facing of the door that led into the cashier's room. I went to him when the smoke cleared away, and found at his left side a forty-four cartridge, and at his right side a forty-one Colts cartridge that had been snapped, the cap having gone two-thirds of the way in. His pistol had failed to shoot, and the smoke caused me not to see it. I looked around for his gun, but not finding it, I was satisfied that whoever pulled the dead man out of the door had taken it. 
I stepped back to McCormick and told him that we had better knock the empties out and reload our guns as we had one more man to catch. When I learned that the wrong man had been killed, however, I knew that we had both the murderers to capture, and McCormick and I soon got busy. Zimmerman and Mayers were running around in a cluster of excited men, but we picked them out and gave chase to Zimmerman, leaving Mayers behind. The sheriff came up about that time, and I secured a horse for him and sent him after Zimmerman, who was trying very hard to make his escape. Then I summoned seventy-five men to help me search for Mayers, who I thought was hiding behind one of the numerous piles of culverts, ties, and rails that were stacked in different places up and down the tracks. Zimmerman was soon caught by the sheriff and brought back to me. A lady saw Zimmerman and Mayers drop two six-shooters in a barrel, and she got the weapons and sent them to me a little while after they were captured. Mayers was found, after a three-hour search, in a restaurant, bleeding to death from the wound on his chin, which he had received during the fight. I took him to a doctor and had him treated. Then I wired the sheriff at Beaver City, Oklahoma, that I had his men. He came at once and got them. An inquest was held over the body of the man whom we had killed, and we were exonerated. The grand jury met in June, and they also declared that I was not guilty of murder. They were of the opinion that if the man had not been a fugitive from justice, he would not have tried to pull a gun on me. They further declared that I did what any other officer should have done under the same circumstances. End chapters 51 through 55